I was playing all kinds of sports in Pennsylvania, and then I would come home after uh, at school, and you know, all, the only thing I really watched on TV was sports. I watched a lot of baseball, football, basketball. I also played hockey too, uh, but I was watching every Saturday that I could, and very occasionally they'd put on sumo, and I was immediately, uh, I immediately fell in love with sumo. I mean, it was like. This is great, man. I mean, you know, these are guys who are obviously athletes. You know, they would show the great Chiono Fuji, and they would also show people like Takamiyama, who was, of course, the first great American sumo tori. Um, Jesse James Wailani Kuhalua from Maui. Uh, Takamiyama was the first great American star in sumo. And they, they'd show him, and they'd show a whole bunch of the other guys, Taiho. Kotokaze, uh, Chiono Fuji, uh, the original Takanohana and Wakanohana, a um, bunch of other guys uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. And um, I just totally fell in love with sumo. This is Kevin Carter, sumotori, judoka, writer, intellectual. You're listening to No Holds Barred with Eddie Goldman. Hello everyone around the world. Once again, this is Eddie Goldman on No Old Sparred. The sport of sumo has seen its ups and downs in the U.S. over the past several decades. It seemed to peak in the 1990s and then to a degree in the mid-2000s with the World Sumo Challenge and World Sumo League. But the rapid demise of that organization was followed by a decline in sumo's popularity in the U.S. for several years. In recent times, as we've been discussing on many episodes of the show, there's been a revival of interest in sumo in the U.S. For it to advance further, however, it is essential to understand why it declined back then after appearing to be headed for greater success. It would be difficult to find someone more capable of discussing the ups and downs of American sumo than Kevin Carter. In short, especially in the 90s, he did it all, including competing in national and international sumo competitions, writing about sumo, being a broadcaster, and helping organize sumo events. On Wednesday, April 14th, we had a lengthy discussion with him about all this. This is the first part of that interview, broken up into two parts, both to make it easier to listen to and for technical reasons. The second part will be posted shortly. But before we get to the first part of our discussion with Kevin Carter, a word from the sponsors of No Holds Barred. No Holds Barred is brought to you by... LennyHart.com, the home of Lenny Hart, the legendary MMA and sports announcer, voice actor, singer, actress, and comedian. 
Lenny is also known for her jazz vocals with her Lenny Hart Jazz Cabaret Band. For more information, to book her or to order a custom message from her, go to LennyHart.com. That's L-E-N-N-E-H-A-R-D-T dot com. And Skulls Fight Shop, home of the Skulls Double End Bag the perfect punching bag for your combat sports training. Skull's double-end bags provide a realistic striking target and help improve speed, distance, and timing skills. Hang it and hit it right out of the box. No pump required. Skull's Fight Shop, advancing combat sports equipment for the next generation of fighters. For more information, go to Skull's that's S-K-U-L-L-Z, fightshop.com. And Adolfina Studios, original art prints and handcrafted fine jewelry. For more information, go to etsy.com, that's E-T-S-Y dot com, slash shop, slash Adolfina Studios, that's A-D-O-L-P-H-I-N-A Studios. Also, Please subscribe to the No Holds Barred page on Patreon for much more No Holds Barred content that's at patreon.com slash Eddie Goldman. Hello everyone around the world. Welcome back. This is Eddie Goldman, No Holds Barred. And now, the first part of our discussion with Kevin Carter. We've been talking a lot about the revival of sumo in the United States, but the people that are making it happen now in the last couple of years are not the first generation of people to do this. Back in the 90s and the early and mid-2000s, there was a lot going on in sumo in the U.S., and one of the things I'm trying to do is connect people who were involved back then with people who are currently involved to see if this sport can really grow and become much more popular in the U.S. And one of the people that I first met back in the 90s who trained with Manny Arborough and was a friend and colleague of him was Kevin Carter. And he since, again, that was a long time ago and he's no longer competing, but has a wealth of information which has been untapped for many years in sumo. So we're going to find out some of what Kevin Carter did, some of the lessons, some of the stories, and his involvement, how he got involved with sumo. And we have him on the line right now, and welcome to No Holds Barred. Eddie, it's an honor, I must tell you, to be here talking with you on No Holds Barred. I've been listening to you for decades I really uh, appreciate and enjoy the knowledge and passion you bring to all of the combat sports. You've uh, provided and performed a great service for the combat sports and for sports in general. And I just want to tell you how honored I am to be uh, on your show. Well, thank you. I'm honored to have you also, you know, since... We've been doing this a long time. It means we're both getting old. But one of the, one of the things 
one of the positive things about sumo that you don't see in some other sports is that they honor their elders and they respect their elders who could no longer get out on the mat and no longer run around and and do all those things which i think is one of the one of the facets one of the positive facets of of sumo culture and although sometimes in japan they may take it to an extreme but honoring people who have been around for a while is important and that's one of the things i want to talk to you about is how you first got involved with sumo and how you see it moving forward today as someone who hasn't really been involved in sumo in a while but give us a give us a little idea of your background how you first got involved with this i mean you know your sports background and what led you to do sumo sure i'd love to do that um it's interesting because i didn't really get into sumo the traditional way um I grew up, believe it or not, in rural Pennsylvania, and um, I had first seen sumo uh, by watching, I uh, believe it was NBC Sports uh, during the 70s and the 80s, used to have uh, occasional sumo basho footage um, during their Saturday sports shows, um, and I was, you know, I was uh, kind of a pudgy, rotund kid. I was very athletic, you know, not not a uh, not a freakishly great athlete, but a good athlete. And I was playing soccer and baseball and wrestling, and didn't play football, believe it or not, because uh, just couldn't play football. Football wasn't available to us when we were kids at that age. But uh, I was playing all kinds of sports in Pennsylvania, and then I would come home after. Uh, at school and you know all, the only thing I really watched on TV was sports I watched a lot of baseball, football basketball, I also played hockey too uh, but I was watching every Saturday that I could and very occasionally they put on sumo and I was immediately uh, I immediately fell in love with sumo I mean it was like this is great man I mean you know these are guys who are obviously athletes you know, they would show the great Chiono Fuji, and they would also show people like Takamiyama, who was, of course, the first great American sumo tori, um, Jesse James Wailani Kuhalua from Maui. Uh, Takamiyama was the first great American star in sumo, and they, they'd show him, and they'd show a whole bunch of the other guys, Taiho, Kotokaze, uh, Chiono Fuji, uh, the original Takanohana and Wakanohana, a um, bunch of other guys uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. And um, I just totally fell in love with sumo. So um, I never thought that I'd actually have a chance to do it. So I would uh, basically just keep it in my mind as something I'd, I'd like to follow and I'd like to watch. Didn't have a lot of opportunities other than the occasional NBC uh, broadcast. And then very occasionally as well you would see some footage of uh, sumo on ESPN when it started up in the 80s uh, not a whole lot though so you know there wasn't a whole lot of sumo to watch now in the early 80s I became a college student 
and I played football a little bit at Harvard. You know, it's funny playing, never playing football in high school, but played in college, and uh, did that just for a couple of years, and uh, played on the defensive line. Although I started out as a kicker, believe it or not, started out as a kicker because I was a soccer player in high school, and I looked at football as a you know something I always wanted to do, and so I said, well. I don't know a whole lot about actually playing. I knew the sport very well, but I'd never played. So I said, let me just try to make it as a kicker. And I was kind of a mediocre kicker, but I did like contact. And I was big, especially by Ivy League standards, you know, six feet tall, 250, 260, 270 by the time I was, you know, about 20 years old. So I got moved to the line, and I played there for a little bit. And um, I liked it. And, of course, you, you know that the, the you know, a lot of the skills that you learn in offensive and def- defensive line are very similar to those in sumo. But, again, you know, I knew that there wasn't going to be a whole lot of uh, use for either football or sumo for me when I got out of college. So graduated from uh, Harvard in 1985 and immediately went into journalism. And I figured that journalism was what I would do for a living for the rest of my life. I actually wanted to be in Japan to be a foreign correspondent. That never happened, but I had developed a serious affinity for Japanese culture. And, of course, Japanese culture and sumo, uh, sumo is very representative and typifies a lot of the religious, cultural, and athletic norms and traditions of Japan. And, you know, as I aged, I also noticed that just almost imperceptibly, there were a lot more opportunities to watch sumo, although they still weren't very many, but there were a lot more than there had been when I was growing up. Uh, So uh, I would, you know, anytime I got a chance to watch it on TV again, I would do it. And then I I had started uh, just doing a little bit of reading on sumo, but again, not I never really had the obsession or the um, passion for it until one day I had moved to Philadelphia as a younger man. Um, like I want I didn't want to live and grow up in Pennsylvania, but I wanted to be closer to my family, especially my my uh, paternal family, which came from uh, York, Pennsylvania, and there's still a lot of people with my surname uh, in. Pennsylvania, who are my relatives, and there are a lot of uh, a lot of cousins on my father's side in that area. So, basically, scattered throughout Pennsylvania are my family. So, I wanted to come back after going off to Cambridge and into Los Angeles, where I worked for a while, and then I worked in Western Pennsylvania for a while. Decided to come to Philadelphia. I became a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. So, I had. Uh, by that time, I had made it to the sports staff of the Inquirer. Um, in 1988, I started working the sports staff, and I worked on the sports staff for about four years. And then I moved to the culture and uh, culture and media, music, arts staff. Um, around the time I was transitioning, I was at home watching Channel 10 News. I'll never forget this. And they did a feature on this big dude named Emmanuel Yarborough. <laughs> That's Channel 10 in Philadelphia. Channel 10 in Philadelphia, WCAU. Um, they, they had done a 
feature on Manny who had gone over to Japan for the first time and competed in the World Amateur Sumo Championships. And that minute, <laughs> I, I resolved to do a story on Manny. That the next day, I went to the editors of the sports section, and I told them, I said, "Look, I'm going up to North Jersey. I decided if you know anything about where this guy had trained and anything about him, I said I'm going to go to Northern New Jersey. I'm going to find this guy." And uh, you know, I, I remember watching the uh, watching the uh, feature that they had done on him, and I was able to find out where he trained. And I was able to find out, you know, who his coach was. Uh, his coach was uh, Yoshida Yonetsuka, who has his own dojo in Cranford, New Jersey, and who had been living in Cranford for quite some time. As it turned out, uh, you know, Yanni, or um, we were still, I was still calling him Mr. Yonetsuka, or uh, Yonetsuka Sensei, or Yonetsuka San, uh, had actually been quite the. Um, figure in Japan as an amateur and college judoka and sumo tori. Um, he was well known in Japan for his judo accomplishments and he came to the United States in the early 60s to coach um, in, in many different uh, settings and he ended up setting up his dojo in I guess the late 60s or early 70s. I'm not sure when he actually set it up but he had a you know very well-known dojo in northern New Jersey, and Emmanuel Yarbrough had been uh, a wrestler and football player at Rahway High School in New Jersey, and a uh, and an All-American wrestler at Morgan State University in Baltimore. That's a very interesting um, side side um, side story about the pioneering African-American wrestlers in this country. Uh, what people don't really know is that there have always been a strong African-American presence in wrestling, you know, even, you know, stemming from back when the sport itself was segregated. People don't know that. But there were days in the first half of the last century and even going into the 50s and even into the early 60s where wrestling was segregated, where black high schools could not wrestle white high schools and black colleges could not wrestle white colleges. And there were a lot of problems in having, in people getting the access to the higher levels of the sport of wrestling because that segregationist ethic was still there. So it was very fascinating to see Manny Yarborough coming from a place like Morgan State, a historical black college and university that had a strong wrestling program and it produced more than one All-American. Do you, do you so remember, anyway. by the way, what happened with Manny at Morgan State? Because in those days, college wrestling had an unlimited weight class. So I don't know what, yeah, yeah. what Manny's weight was at the time, but there were a number of wrestlers that were like in the three, 400-pound right. category, Tab Thack or some other right. people, most yep, of whom yep, were African-American. Yep. So what did the NCAA do? They changed the limits to like, I think it was 275 yeah. or 285, which it was, was impossible. Yeah, which was right. impossible for these guys to make. 
So Manny was an All-American a couple of times at Morgan State, which along the way became a Division I program. But he still had a year of wrestling eligibility left in college. But they wouldn't. He couldn't wrestle because they said he was too right. big. And since yeah, then, now, Morgan State. Now, one, Morgan one of the State, problems that, with that was that they like legislated the big man out of college wrestling and high school wrestling because it was the same kind of thing in high school wrestling. Right. Because the international federation had some stupid desire to eliminate the big man out of out of. Right. Um, to eliminate the big man from wrestling. As people were getting bigger around the world, and as you would see, I mean, you know, that weight class would eliminate virtually every NFL lineman, you know, from that. Oh, of course. And the other effect of it was Morgan State no longer has a wrestling program. They closed down their wrestling program. There are a lot of reasons for that, but yeah. And, and it, it's really a shame because Morgan State and like other schools, Morgan State was probably the most prominent historical black college university that had a wrestling team. Right. But there were other ones who also produced great wrestlers. And it's just Howard. a shame. To, yeah, I was going to mention Howard. Yeah, how, you know, Howard was really good in play in sports like soccer, wrestling that 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 other schools never really saw. You never saw great black athletes in those sports. Well, in the 70s, you kind of started seeing great black soccer players. But before that, it was usually Howard was like the only school that produced like these elite wrestlers, elite soccer players, um, and elite guys in other positions. Uh, although, you know, Hampton had a great tennis team, believe it or not. Um, and, and it was funny because Hampton used to have a lot of guys that came up from Brazil to play tennis at Hampton U. Um, there's a lot of schools like that, and we could really like go off on tangents on HBCU schools because now they're often their schools like Alcorn State in Mississippi have become almost like reverse diversity schools because in the state of Mississippi, every school was told to integrate. That was schools like Ole Miss. University of Southern Mississippi, but it was also schools like Alcorn and uh, Delta State and uh, Mississippi Valley State, Jackson State. Every school was called to diversify. So your schools that were predominantly white were told to bring in black people, and your schools that were predominantly black were told to bring in white or other people. So one of the things that, that Alcorn did was started recruiting people from other countries to be to go to their schools and, and to participate in sports. So if you go to Alcorn today, you'll see a huge Russian population. Wow. So the the, uh, the upshot yeah. of it was, I mean, aside from the fact that it gave the, the white supremacists in college wrestling a heads up, um, just as a side note, I pointed this out, at this year's NCAA, I don't know if you still follow it, but at the NCAA Division I wrestling championships in the 10 weight classes, five of the winners were African-Americans. And when that was pointed out, so a, lot, a number of people in the wrestling community went berserk, you know, about a lot of the white supremacists. And, of the, and in the finals of the coaches, 
is I, I know know a lot of these guys. Of the coaches in the finals, about the first and second place winners, there was exactly zero African American coaches. And in NCAA Division One wrestling, which has seventy some something schools, and the number fluctuates because a couple of them are going out. I think there are uh, three African American coaches at this time. So it's been yeah. it, the the one of the effects of what they did to Manny also was to close down the participation of more African American wrestlers and oh, yeah. the coaches Definitely. generally are people who themselves were successful college wrestlers. So if you right. keep them out of college wrestling a few years later when they're retiring as athletes, they're not available to be you know, you don't have them as coaches, which led people like Manny to to who wanted to still compete in combat sports to go to sp- uh, sports where he could compete, such as judo and judo sumo. MMA. Yeah. Well, MMA. Yeah, he did that a little while too, but he got the most yeah. prominence in his case from from sumo which is interesting. So that created a a culture when you got involved with it. And and to this day, even though you got a lot of different people involved in U.S. sumo today, there's been more of a culture of diversity in American sumo, even going back to that time, which is one of the potential strengths as we see the more recent revival. So anyway, so we got the story up to where you did you were yeah. covering Manny. Um and so how did you go from behind a word processor to wearing a Mawashi? Yeah, it's funny because um uh, I had gone up to uh to Yanni's and met him and basically spent a day with uh with him and Manny uh, basically just talking, you know, just hanging out, you know, did an interview with the two of them. And then we just, you know, it, it went from more than an interview to just us talking at length about all kinds of things. And when that day was over, I kind of started getting, getting the thinking. I was like, you know, I've always been interested in sumo. So, you know, I need to train this myself. I want to do this too. And Yanni was very receptive, you know. <laughs> I think he was receptive because I was so passionate about sumo and sports in general. And, you know, we were talking, and he noticed that I really did know a lot about sumo, even though, you know, I obviously had never done it. And he was just surprised that that somebody like me, you know, at some some black dude from, you know, wherever I, where he thought I was from, had known, you know, so much about sumo. So he welcomed me. And so, you know, it wasn't that we had a lot of practices, but anytime we had practices, I would come up and he would basically just, you know, have some of his judo guys just, you know, put, we just push each other around the mat. And uh, then we finally got Mawashis, which was kind of important because the style that I ended up developing in sumo was not of a pusher because your bigger, stronger guys were known for, you know, just trying to push people and overwhelm them out of the ring. 
by sumo standards, I was a very small, relatively weak guy. So I had to learn how to do technique. And that fit me perfectly because I was into studying. So what I would do was, there was a store, a complex up in uh, Edgewater, Edgewater Park, is that what it's called? I forget, near Fort Lee in, in, um, in North New Jersey called Yaohan. And it was basically a complex of Japanese uh, stores and Japanese places, restaurants, stores, libraries, all kinds of things, where people who were interested in Japanese culture, mostly Japanese exiles, but also people just interested in Japanophiles, really, could go and, and basically indulge their passion. And I would go there every couple months and I would buy as many videotapes of old sumo matches as I could find. And I would buy magazines. And I would sit for hours and hours and hours and hours and study sumo. My film study was so extensive, I could basically, I basically would watch five hours of sumo every day. And I would use that to kind of compensate for my lack of ability to train live because I never had the opportunity to train live except for when we were doing um, pushing drills at, at Yanni's place. But after about a year of this, um, I was trying to find out how I could really get some live action. And into that came this older man. That, you got to talk to this guy too, Eddie. This older man named Charlie Bray, who lived in Canada and Pittsburgh, and he was, <coughs> excuse me, he had played in the Canadian Football League, and, and I think he had had a cup of coffee with the New York Giants as an offensive lineman in the 50s and 60s. And what and was his name again? Spell his name. Charlie Bray. Okay. Charlie Bray, B-R-A-Y. Okay, I'll look him up. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll give you his number. Okay, after, but, uh, after the show. Charlie, yeah, Charlie decided to have this live sumo matches between an American team and a Canadian team. This was in Hamilton, Ontario in 1993. And... Um, so we went up to Hamilton, Ontario. He had some guys in, from Niagara Falls, Niagara Falls, Canada, and Niagara Falls, the United States. And he got he had like eight guys. And then he had Manny come up. Now, Manny did not actually participate in this. It was like a dual meet. But he had eight guys, um, four guys from the United States and four guys from Canada. And we had two dual meets, U.S. versus Canada, on a Saturday and Sunday in Hamilton, Ontario. I was the fourth guy on the American team. Nobody, I mean, it was so funny. You know, we didn't really know how to time a washies. You know, we had these, uh, these, we had these silk canvas things. I don't even know where he got them. But they weren't traditional mawashis. And, you know, we didn't know how to time a washies at the time. We had this... Uh, small ring that was on top of a uh, uh, a stage in, in Hamilton um, 
you know, we, we did, you know, he, he made sure to teach us the correct starting rituals and the correct tachii, which is the initial hitting in sumo. But aside from that, we didn't know what we were doing. We just went out there and we used our skills that we had acquired however way we had acquired them. Some of us were football guys. Some were judo guys. I was a sports writer who did a lot of film study. Um, but you, you know, also wrestled and did football, too. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I had a wrestling and football background as a young kid. Uh, so, you know, I wasn't exactly like a fish out of water. And I had 15 matches that uh, that weekend, and I won 9 out of, nine out of 15. Um, because it was like a round robin thing. It wasn't like a dual. It wasn't a dual meet where we had U.S. versus Canada. Everyone wrestled everyone, and we all had fifteen matches apiece. And I went nine and seven, or no nine nine and six. And I had also injured my uh, my my ankle doing this, but it was the you know one of the most fun times I ever had. And I ended up winning one of the three prizes. Um, we had a Fighting Spirit prize. Who uh, this guy, the lightest guy in the match, the lightest guy in the group was from Canada. Is a kid named Jesse Beatty. He went one in fourteen. <laughs> and I, the one match he won, he won because I gave him some tips on how to beat a guy. You know, so but he was one hundred and sixty something pounds. He won the Fighting Spirit prize. The Outstanding Performance prize went to this guy named Rod Saunders who was a 350-pound fire plug, and that was his nickname, fire plug, from Nova Scotia. He went he went um, 13 and 2, yeah. His name was Rod Saunders. He was from Nova Scotia. He was about 5'6", 350. <laughs> you know? And I won the technique prize, and uh, which the Gino Show, Kanto Show, and uh, I forget the thing. Gino Show, Kanto Show. But anyway, it, it was just like I had the time of my life. First time I'd ever done live sumo. And I was very much, um, very much smitten by the sport, and I still am. But uh, that was the first time I had actually ever done real sumo. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Even then, we were talking about diversity. Um, we had uh, Rod Saunders, he was a black Canadian. Um, you know, I was I was one of I think I might have been the only African American there, uh, but the other guys were you know different backgrounds from Canada and the United States. And Charlie Bray was African American from Oklahoma. He he was just a funny guy because you know he, he even still had that and probably still does. Well, I talked to him about a year ago. He still has that uh, real southern southern. Uh, rural southern guy demeanor and, and it was just fun just spending time with him and listening to him tell his stories about playing football and just about sumo he he knew john tenta who was the first uh canadian who had gone over to uh, japan to do sumo and had actually really succeeded well but he gave up before he really got into the higher divisions because he just couldn't deal with the bs of the uh of the sumo world but he had been there Tenta, for about a year, and uh, Charlie Bray was actually telling us, you know, John Tenta stories and stuff like that. So it, w it was really fun just doing that. And he so ended after, up in the WWF, or whatever it was called. Yeah, yeah. Earthquake is that what it was? I forget his uh, name. What, one of those. What was he they called? kept changing his name a couple. I forget. Yeah. 
Yeah. So after that uh, experience, you know, I, I decided that <laughs> I, I definitely had to do more sumo. So coincidentally, <laughs> the World Sumo Federation, which was headquartered in Tokyo and still is, at that time was really trying to push an internationalization of sumo, of amateur sumo, because they were trying to get sumo into the Olympics. So they had asked people who were involved in judo and other combat sports, especially judo and wrestling, to get people of every weight, not just bigger guys, to go to Japan for the World Sumo Championships. Uh, the first World Sumo Championships were in 1992. Um, I think Manny competed in 1992, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, I think. <coughs> and he ended up winning the world in, in, in 1995. But um, they wanted to bring in athletes from all over the world. And we didn't really have countries in North America that were um, doing sumo except for the United States and Canada. So I proposed to Yanni, knowing what I do about, you know, international sports governance and, and how federations work, I said, Yanni, I'll get two guys, I'll get, I'll get a couple Puerto Ricans, and I'll go over because coaches are allowed to compete as a coach, and the three of us will compete as Puerto Rico. And Yanni's like, cool. So <laughs> he sent uh, he sent the names of the guys that I had provided him as the Puerto Rican team. So it was me and two other guys until it was time to go over to Japan, and the other guys like froze and they didn't go. <laughs> so I was the Puerto Rican sumo team in 1994. <laughs> 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 My two guys just totally choked on me. In fact, one guy I think he ended up getting arrested before we went over there. Because I kept calling him and he never answered the phone. <laughs> but um, and the other guy that I that I enlisted, he was a big, strong guy, but he was a punk, and he was scared. So he's like, "Oh man, I can't do it, man. I can't do it." Which is a shame because you know, if he'd have won a match, if he'd have lost a match, it would have still been great for him to experience that. So sure. I go over in 1994, and I'm the Puerto Rican sumo team. And <laughs> it, was, it was one of the most amazing experiences in my life. I had, it, it was a blast, you know. I actually had, you know, we, we trained with a lot of the Hayas in Tokyo, Hayas as in sumo stables. Um, I ended up meeting two of the, there were two Latinos in pro sumo at the, same, at the time, and I ended up meeting and befriending those guys. Uh, one was uh, Hoshi Andes and the other was Hoshi Tango. They were from Argentina, two Spanish-speaking people. And there were also several Brazilians uh, of Japanese origin or part Japanese origin. Actually, one of the Brazilians was not of Japanese origin. But there, Brazil actually had, since there was a huge Japanese cultural influence in the south of Brazil, sumo has been going on in Brazil since after World War II. And they had been having national championships in sumo all that time. And I also believe uh, Lyoto Machida, who was uh, not from southern Brazil, but was of Japanese-Brazilian heritage, he started out as a sumo tori. 
You know, his father taught karate, but he also taught him sumo. And sumo was one of the first sports he competed in in Brazil. So when I went over to Japan, I knew that there were a lot of Brazilians in sumo. So, you know, I had taken Portuguese at Harvard. I knew how to speak Spanish. My family is part Latino. So I really had a good time getting to know a lot of the Latin American competitors in sumo, both amateur and professional. In fact, I, I, let, I met the, uh, the head of the Brazilian Sumo Federation, who was the father of one of the pros. And we got to know each other. And we had really, his name was uh, Luis Ikenori Sr. And we really got to know each other and really spent a lot of time talking when we were over in Japan. And I also made a lot of connections with a lot of the African sumo tori, uh, especially the Senegalese. Because the first year I went over there, uh, the, the, the African teams were Senegal, Madagascar, South Africa, which was kind of interesting. <laughs> Mark Robinson was one of the people who, who I had met over there at that time. Um, I think that I think that might have been it for Africa at the time. Later, the later years I was over there, and I'll tell you about those two. Uh, there were more African competitors, but the first time I was over there, it was Senegal, and Senegal always really looked good when they were competing. You know, again, the the, the lamb, which was the traditional Senegalese wrestling, really translated well to sumo. And, you know, I really had a great time talking to the, the to all of the people. And uh, the, the, only, the only thing that, that really went wrong was that I went, um, I, had, I was in the open division, and I lost my first match because I forgot that I had to, I didn't finish shoving the guy out of the ring from Paraguay who I was fighting, and I, I grabbed him, you know, did an easy yorikiri, you know, I just, I, I went down, I had the perfect technique, moved him all the way to the edge and thought I had him out, and I relaxed, and the guy threw me out at the very end of the ring. So I was I was out, and I didn't get to compete in the team event, of course, because all my guys were frozen out, so I was one and done that year. But I actually had a chance to fight in the dojo at the World Sumo Championships in 1994 in the Ryogoku Koku Gikan in Tokyo uh, under the Emperor's box. Of course, the Emperor wasn't there, but uh, I didn't care. I mean, I had gotten to do what I had always wanted to do, which is to do sumo in Japan. And, you know, the the, the parties after were almost as good as, as what we were doing in the, in the ring. I mean, <laughs> everything was just fun over in Tokyo. You know, we just had a good time, and I got to meet a lot of the uh, a lot of the Mongolian pros because anytime, like the the Mongolian, there are a lot of Mongolians who would come to compete in the amateurs, and the Mongolian pros would come to support them. So it was great seeing all these Mongolians there in sumo gear, you know, professional sumo gear, because at that time there was a, a large number of Mongolians in the pros. Uh, there were also uh, a fair number of Mongolians, I mean, a fair number of Hawaiians, a fair number of Americans from Hawaii. So they would come out to support the U.S. people. So we were always hanging out with um, so many of the guys. Uh, we didn't, well, I'll tell you a Taylor Tuli story, but that wasn't the first year. Taylor wasn't there um, in the amateurs 
uh, that year. Uh, he came later, but I'll tell you a Taylor story. Um, but so that year we had uh, the guy who was, and, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about the Hawaiians too, because the amateur team that the United States brought was mostly from Hawaii. Um, <coughs> this guy who was the lightweight on the U.S. team was a guy named Nobu Tsuchiya. Nobu, I think, was Japanese-born, but was raised in Hawaii. And he was actually one of the best sumo tori Hawaii ever produced in the amateur ranks, even though he was a lightweight. He was only like 180 pounds, but he was just a tough SOB. And he was really, really good. He always he always scored really well in the Hawaii State Championships every year, even though he was one of the smallest guys in Hawaii. So Nobu ended up taking third in the world that year in 94. And the International um, Sumo also, Federation put in weight classes, unlike the Japan Sumo Association, which is running pro sumo in Japan. Well, yeah, exactly. You, you didn't have weight classes in, in the Nihon Sumo Kyokai, which is the pro-Japan sumo, sumo association, but you did have weight classes in the Nihon Sumo Renmei, um, which is the Japan Sumo Federation, which was for, which basically was the um, governing body for all amateur sumo in Japan, including corporate sumo, high school, college, um, and international sumo. Um, you know, at the time you had three weight classes in open. Your, your lightweight class was up to 180 pounds. Your middleweight class was up to 255 pounds, and your heavyweight class was, of course, anything above 255. And then you had open, which was anybody. So, yeah, it, it was really great to see, you know, the the U.S. guys, and you know, like all the all the Americans who were in sumo at the time, except for my one buddy Henry Miller, who at the time was the only person of African-American origin ever to do sumo in the pros and was the only mainland American at the time in the pros. He wasn't there, but almost all the Hawaiians were, except for Akibono, Musashimaro, and Konishiki, who were off on a junyo, which was a, a trip. Um, no, they, no, that's not true. That was the next year. But Aki, neither of the top guys, none of the top guys were at the amateur worlds, but we did have... Um, Guys like George Kalima, who was a Yamato. Um, George showed up. Um, Percy Kipapa, who passed away uh, recently, he was there. Um, John Feliunga was there. Uh, Kaleo Kekooha was there. Um, Eric Gaspar. Um, and all these guys were like Hawaiians, you know, Polynesian dudes. Um, who else was there? Uh, William Hopkins was there. Um, he was Hawaiian, although nobody really knew it. But he was—he was always tell you. He's like, you know, people call me Caucasian. I'm Hawaiian, you know. People—he would always make sure that you know that he was Hawaiian. But he was one of the pros that was there too. Um, Wayne Vieira was there, who was an ex-pro, but he was on the United States team. Um, we had a guy named Heath Johnson, who was one of the U.S. heavyweights. Now, he was an American. He's an interesting guy. 
he was a Mormon from Utah who went to Japan for um, his Mormon mission, and he decided to stay there. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of converting yeah. them, they converted him. Right? Exactly. He married a Japanese girl who, who was an absolute doll baby, just a wonderful lady. I could see why he stayed there because she was just a perfect, the perfect person for him. You know, she was sweet. She was very nice, and she, you know, kept him, kept him on his toes when he was being a knucklehead. So <laughs> she was like the perfect lady for him. So I could see why he stayed in Japan. But he was, um, he was like a weightlifter type. And he ended up being the American middleweight in the pros. That, I mean, in the, in the worlds that year. Um, so yeah, that was that was the team. You had you had Nobu, you had Heath, you had Wayne, and then I think I forget who the other guy was on the team. It might have been Kenneth Heffernan, who was part of a who, who turned out to be a dynasty of Hawaiians in in, in amateur sumo. His father's a guy named Roger Heffernan, uh, who was. Uh, also, one of the better uh, middleweights to come out of the islands, <laughs> but even then, Roger was kind of old. Roger was in his forties because Kenna was a fullback at uh, at Yale. He had come from uh, all the way from Punahou School in Hawaii to be a fullback at Yale. You know, me being from Harvard, I used to give him shit all the time. I was like, <laughs> dude, if I'd have known you back when I, you know, we. <laughs> he always used to tell me he was just beat the living mess out of me. I was like, you better be lucky I'm old and not out of shape, man. We used to give each other shit all the time. <laughs> but he's still, like, even now, he's probably, like, the only guy who's doing anything in sumo in Hawaii. You know, he's in his late 40s now. And and this is all in the mid-90s. Which yeah, this about. was in the early the early to mid-90s, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. even, you know, if you t- look into the background in Hawaii, you know, John Jacks, who basically kept sumo going in Hawaii for many years uh, was this uh, you know white dude from Long Island who had settled in Colorado and then he ended up in Hawaii and in the 60s he was training in Japan he was the first blue-eyed sumo you know he was the first foreigner to really at least from Hawaii to really be putting a lot of his uh, time into training you know he had been a rugby prop and you know, like to like to mix it up like uh, rugby props like to do, you know. And and he had a really strong background in sumo, and he was one of the people who grew sumo in, in at least on Oahu. Um, what people don't also know is that the Big Island had a tradition of uh, sumo. Uh, basically, the Aruda brothers uh, were the <coughs> excuse me were the top guys on that island and we're talking about the 1960s at this time from the 60s and the 70s these were you know really big bad portuguese hawaiian guys and they were all there were like five of them and they were like and, and then they ended up having kids and they were part of a dynasty too uh who basically dominated sumo on the big island for years and they every year that they would go to uh go to oahu and have the state championships it would basically be Hawaii versus the, be, be the Big Island of Hawaii versus Oahu, and uh, each uh, island would bring ten to fifteen guys, and that's how they'd have the state championships. Everybody would fight everyone. Now you had this incredible upsurge of sumo by the nineties, 
in yeah. the in the among Americans all over, as you've mentioned, all over yep. the the United States. Yeah, you had in '94. Uh, Manny Yarborough was in his ill-fated match in uh, UFC, and that's why I first yeah. got to know him because I interviewed him before UFC three. When yeah. they put yeah, him on opposite sides, you remember that they put him on opposite side. They had the the one night tournaments then, so they put him yeah. on opposite sides of the bracket from Hoist Gracie because yep. they figured he'd yep. face Hoist in the finals, and neither of them right. made it to the finals that show. Exactly. Oh yeah. man, yeah, I was I was I was there, and I was in the I was in the locker room because I was one of Manny's corner guys, and man. <laughs> That whole thing was just absolutely insane. <laughs> you know, you remember the guy who uh, who fought who fought Hoist Gracie later on in the in this guy Chemo. He was a Hawaiian, right? You remember you remember Chemo? Yeah, he was he would come out with the huge cross and uh, yeah, he just seemed to yeah, be he, like a big was, brawler. I was going to say he was a street guy, and it was so funny because you know they tried to you know put chemo forward as this you know warrior for christ and you know this uh you know this this like really pious really christian guy and you know i'm sure on some levels he was that guy but what he really was was just a straight up street fighter and it was just so funny just listening to this dude talk man he he he, he was just hilarious in some of the things that he would say but i distinctly remember after he got done, you know, basically whooping on Hoist Gracie, we asked him about it. We asked him, man, what was this guy like? He's like, man, I don't fuck tougher motherfuckers than that on the street. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was UFC back, yeah, well, it was, they were building it as a spectacle, and a lot of us yeah. wanted to see it develop as a sport, and it's still a spectacle, yeah. after all, the, even though it's yeah, yeah. become it more mature. But it's you know become sort of like uh, the professional wrestling, the work professional wrestling culture with real fights. So that's one of the many reasons yeah. I'm not involved with yeah. that. So Manny goes to UFC three and he loses his first fight. Yeah. But in '95, yeah. as you mentioned, he wins the world championships, and yeah. there's a lot of attention being drawn to sumo at the time. And in 96, he loses in the finals to Mark Robinson of South Africa. That's right. Yeah, I was there. I saw that. There was all this attention, and this led moving forward to 1998, when there was an attempt to create a professional sumo organization with the Night of the Giants event at Atlantic City, at what was then known as the Trump Taj Mahal. And Manny yep. was entered in it. Mark Robinson was entered in it. And I remember going, covering that event um, in Atlantic City. So it, it looked like, wow, they were going to get on ESPN. This is really going to take off. And and tell us what happened from, from your perspective there. Because unfortunately, it didn't take off at the time. Well, there are, there are a few things that, that was wrong with it. Um I mean, they did the right thing in getting the athletes that they got. 
um, you know, a Rob, people like Robinson, um, Manny, um, by, another um, buyer Sycon. Well, buyer Sycon was one. They had a couple of Mongolians. Batter Dean is the one I was thinking of. Um, buyer Sycon, uh, some of the other Hawaiians like Wayne Vieira, Kaleo Kekaoha, um, the Bulgarians. Um, they had the Koreans. They had some Serum guys from Korea who were very cool guys. Uh, a couple Georgians, uh, guys from Soviet, you know, what used to be Soviet Georgia. But Serum uh, is and, a Korean form. It's a little different than Japanese sumo, but it's a traditional right. style of sumo. Yeah, essentially, yeah, that's what the, the Japanese, you know, being ethnocentric as they are, always used to call Serum Korean sumo. <laughs> And then they had, you know, a couple of the champions of Buk, which were the, which is what they would call Mongolian sumo. And um, yeah, which is more like belt. It's it's a little different, yeah, but it's a style that's still practiced in both Mongolia and also Inner Mongolia, which is part of China, and that's and in Russia, yeah, in Tuva, Tanutuva, of Russia, Inner Mongolia, China. And of course, in Mongolia. <coughs> Excuse me. So, so they had a lot. Of, they had a lot of top guys, and they had a tournament format that was there. Well, but... the the tournament ended up being messed up because Yanni, who was a truly great man and a wonderful man, but Yanni, the one flaw that I always see in Yanni was that you couldn't tell him anything. I mean, if there was. Like, if he wanted to do something a certain way, it was going to be done that way no matter what. And Yanni had brought over these guys from Europe, a couple British guys, uh, very venerated judo senseis. Uh, Sid Hor was one of the guys. Uh, Sid Hor is just like, just an, an icon of judo. I mean, he was one of the great, aside from Neil Adams, he's one of the great judoka ever to come out of out of. Britain, Great Britain. And he knew how to run tournaments. He had run the European Championships. He had run other tournaments. And Sid was like, look, I've got, you know, a pool system that has always worked for the Europeans and it worked for us. And this is how we should run this. I'm like, Sid, you know, I was basically a combination of producer broadcaster and tournament runner I did sort of everything there you know I did I had like three hats that I was wearing and but I was trying to concentrate almost exclusively on broadcasting and I was like Sid whatever you want we'll do it your way and I told Yanni I said Yanni just, we'll just have Sid do you know Sid run this his way and Yanni's like nah 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 we're gonna do it this way we're gonna you know Basically, what he did, and I don't remember the specifics of it was so long ago, something I really wouldn't like to remember. <laughs> but what happened was, with the pressure of the TV production and the having to get everything done, you know, on their time rather than kind of like the more leisurely pace that most tournaments have where people can like resolve problems with pools and, and, and get things moving smoothly by doing them slowly and more accurately, the pools were kind of messed up. So we had to improvise in getting the competition done the way it should have been done. 
So we really didn't hold the tournament was really not legitimate as far as the way it was run because we couldn't run the tournament with with Sid's knowledge and input. We kind of just we were like running things at the seat of our pants, just throwing people out there to wrestle whoever. So it didn't really turn I, I, out. I remember that they had didn't they have a, a program? And I'm trying to follow yeah. who was coming up, and it was like, why yeah. is this guy out there? Yeah, because basically we just had to throw people in the ring. We didn't, and, and Sid Hoare was just like sitting there holding his head, and I'm just sitting there holding my head. <laughs> and Yanni's like, what's going on? You know? We're like, what's going on is you didn't let Sid run this thing, you know? <laughs> so that was a kind of a disappointment. But we were, you know, we did get through some really creative editing and some really creative television, we were able to get the production done. And these guys, we were able to see like people like Mark Robinson, who, you know, very interestingly, they had done a lot of interviewing with before. Probably because he was one of the, you know, he was ranked really high in the, in the world amateur um, rankings. And you know, he had won championships, and he was one of the best amateurs out there. He had been a world know, champion was, in, in yeah. 92 when he beat Manny. And this was yeah. for ESPN. This was shown eventually yeah. on on tape delay on ESPN. Yeah. But, but yeah. my feeling was they expected Manny to win. So you could then right. build the organization around Manny, right. which was a real miscalculation of, yeah. if you're going to do that, bringing in the guy that had beaten him two years before in Japan. Right. And so when Mark Robinson won, who was legitimately tremendous and legitimately yeah, won, my feeling was, are these guys who were not sports guys and these ESPN guys going to yeah. try to build the organization around a white South African Exactly, exactly. We Which were like, is a sport guy, earlier, right, as a sports guy, as a sports guy, you should have expected him to at least do well or win, which is a great sports story, but from the way these marketing and people and bean counters and all these other people yeah. think, I always felt they said, well, you know, we aren't going to be, he's not going to be our star on ESPN in the U.S., Right. Which is shit. Here's shame. the problem. Yeah, as you as you mentioned, we had too many people involved who were like who had like WWE background mm-hmm. instead of sports background. I remember they, they don't know the difference. The, the these TV yeah. people. I'll just interject a little story now before we get back to this timeline. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, if you remember, uh, Trump went to Japan and presented one of the Bashos and presented what they called the President's Cup at the Basho. Um, and he was there. Where Abe was then the Prime Minister, and they did a whole big deal. And they did a segment on CNN where they brought in two people who were leaders of the U.S. Sumo Federation, Ed Sachevsky and Helen Del Popolo, and they're showing yeah. them this to talk about sumo. And then while they're talking with them live on, on CNN... They show a clip from the WWE, and they ask him to talk about that, which is the stupidest, most insulting thing 
And, you know, because these are real sumo people. They both wrestle and they're involved yeah. with you running U.S. Sumo Federation. And they don't they don't understand the difference between a, a real sport. And they, they know it's not a, it's not, you know, a real competitive sport, but they don't understand the culture between a real sport and something that is just a spectacle. They don't get it. And they figure, yeah. oh, real wrestling, fake wrestling, it's all the same. Unless they've competed or they were somebody that had some kind of real combat sport uh, or some style of real wrestling, they do not get it. They're idiots. But anyway, let's go back yeah. to 98. I had to get that. I, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's very interesting because when we, we were in, you know, post-production uh, up in, ironically, um, Sanford, Connecticut, that's where we did the post-production, which was one of the same studios, of course, that the WWF and WWE had done its stuff. And the director of the show was a WWE F director. And I can remember just like getting, like just losing my mind because I would say things that basically showed that I was talking about sumo like a legitimate sport and legitimate art. And he, the, the, the director would keep yelling at me saying, what, what is that? What are you using this term for? Why are you doing that? And I'm like, you obviously don't know what the fuck you're doing. You know, you're, you're very good in directing and you know TV and you know the WWE and stuff like that. This is not the fucking WWE. This is wrestling. Actual wrestling. Actual sumo. Actual art. And you should not be thinking about this like it's a show. You know? And that we were just like... We we've just clashed so much on that, but yeah, you were you're one of the things you pointed out was everybody was trying to build the narrative among around Manny, and the problem that Manny had was is that you know he had a lot of wear on him. He had been doing this stuff for years, you know. He's getting into his thirties and well, in his thirties and. And he was, you know, a big guy. Big guys don't have really long shelf life in sports. And he had been, and, when we talked about him being an All-American, that was like 85, 86. Right. You know, right. And so now you're we're talking, talking about you know, 98. Right. You're talking, you know, 10, 15 years later. So, you know, he was past his prime. And he used to say that. He used to say it's a shame that he didn't, you know, get into sumo or didn't have a chance to get into sumo you know, like when he was in out out of college, like in the, the mid '80s. You know, because he he knew that he would have been able to really just dominate the sport on every level. You know, and you know it was also a thing that he he wasn't really able to train really hard by that time, so he he didn't really train. He just you know he just showed up when it was turn when it was time to compete and competed. So he wasn't at his best, you know. He had he had basically um, he had basically been past his prime by the time that we were all getting, you know, right. to try to to make sumo more popular. He, he which is why he didn't, he didn't. Which is why he, you know, he lost early in that event, the the night of the Giants event. Right. So they got that. That was on tape. They showed that, I believe, on tape delay on ESPN. Not yes. li- not yes. live. 
They didn't have a, a TV deal to show it live. Obviously, sports should be shown live. Um, yeah, because, this was you know, shown like <coughs> this was shown like a couple months after the event happened. Right, it was like two months after, and people knew the results. Yeah. I I had reported on it then. The internet was more in its infancy, but if you followed it, right. if you followed these things, you'd know what happened. And since right. I was still doing, forget exactly which, I probably was still doing it for the radio. And since we had interviewed Manny on WBAI back in '94, I, th- I think I was still with WBAI around the. But I was writing for different publications and doing different things. So if you followed the internet, um, or there was a big article in the Village Voice about it, which you could still look up and find. I think it's in their archives. They had a whole long. Which oh is yeah, I was weird. In that. I was pretty, yeah, pretty was, extensively in that article. Yeah. Right, it was a weird story because, like, the first half of the article is you know, you could the typical at that time Village Voice confessional weird. Yeah cultural kind of thing until they got to the coverage of the tournament like you know a million words in um, but they had I remember you talking about you were quoted in it there was a lot of stuff so you could find out the results but that was one and done and ESPN didn't pick it up and I, I'm, I imagine that the organizers of the event thought they were going to get a more regular deal from ESPN uh, but they right. didn't So that was the end of the night of the Giants. Yeah, yeah, one and done. <clears throat> Did they tell you why nothing happened? I mean, some of the answers may seem obvious, but did they give you a specific reason why why it was one and done? No, I, I, like I said, the problem was, was that, as far as I was concerned, uh, you know, I had really wanted to continue doing broadcasting, if not for you know, those guys who were putting that on but for whoever, but it, it just never happened because I, I never had a real chance to establish any type of uh, relationship with the promoters of that thing. I mean, you know, they, they were not really uh, on the up and up on some level, so we, we, didn't, we didn't have a, a relationship that was uh, conducive to continuing. So they never uh, told me anything about why the Night of the Giants uh, did not continue. But I, I really, uh, really regretted it because I, I had a great time doing that as well. I mean, you know, I was one of the, uh, I was one of the play-by-play guys. And well, no, I was, uh, no, I wasn't the play-by-play. We had, well, we had three guys. We had an analyst who was me. We had a play-by-play guy, and then we had another analyst. But I was probably the uh, the principal color analyst on the show, but I was also one of the producers. And is the video of that available anywhere? That's a good question. Um, I myself have a copy somewhere, but uh, I haven't been able to see one or find one uh, for a while. Right. So what? What ha- after that event was one and done? There was still. Uh, there was still particularly in Hawaii, there was still a lot of interest in American sumo. Uh, A little bit later, um, a year or two later, uh, 
Fern Perlstein and Bob Edwards started the filming for their documentary uh, Sumo East and West, which was at the uh, yeah. the uh, 2003 um, Tribeca Film Festival, which I I covered the event and interviewed him back then. But what happened with with, with uh, a lot of the focus was on Wayne Vieira in that film. But what what happened with you? Were you still involved? Or how much were you still involved? And how much was Manny still involved after that uh, one and done See, event? Here's, as, as what happens in every sport, politics and money and petty, excuse me, petty disputes start taking over things. Um, I had actually been in the late 90s. You know, I, I, I was competing. Uh, I went to Hawaii for a year just to, to work on my sumo and my Japanese. I went to graduate school at the University of Hawaii, and I did sumo every day with, uh, <laughs> this is so funny, we had a guy who was a former uh, Makushita wrestler uh, named uh, Naru Hiko Okabayashi. Uh, he was in the pros for eight years, and uh, he was a, a fount of knowledge of sumo. Um, you know, he was a little guy, so he didn't really uh, succeed very highly in in the professional ranks. But the fact that he had even made it to Makushita at, at like five eight two forty was pretty amazing. That's a top. And, that's a top uh, division in professional. Well, not, not, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Wait a second. Makushita, Jurio, and uh, right below Jurio. Um, no, Makazuchi is the top division. Okay, I'm getting the names mixed up. Yeah, Makushita's right below Jurio. But he made it. Uh, he made it into the top fifty or hundred guys in professional yeah, sumo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, at one point he was he was in the he was like Makushita three, which is astonishing for a guy like him, because he was not a big guy. He was not like really, um, you know, he, he was a he was just a small, tough little dude, and. He had contacted, I don't know how he got to know John Jack, but um, he had called John Jackson and said, look, this was right after he retired from uh, pros. You know, he was in his mid-30s, well, early 30s, I'd say. And uh, he said, you know, I, I want to come to Hawaii and uh, think about opening up a Chanko restaurant in Honolulu. And, you know, he had basically come out there with all the money in his uh, savings. And uh, he said, and while I'm here, I want to train, you know, your guys in Hawaii. Now, the funny thing about the Hawaii sumo scene <coughs> is that nobody in that state trained, man, except for maybe Kenneth Heffernan. And Kenneth Heffernan trained with weights. He wasn't doing sumo. The only time the Hawaiians would get together to actually train sumo was when there was a, a meet or a demonstration or the, or the state championships or something like that. I mean, you didn't have people like just going out to train on a, on a weekly or a bi-weekly or weekend-like basis. So Okabayashi gets to Hawaii, and he doesn't have anyone to train. But he got there at the same time I did. And I was out there because I wanted to train sumo. So John Jacks hooked up me and Okabayashi. So every day, 
while I was in Hawaii, um, <laughs> Okabayashi and I would go out to Waikiki because that's where he was living, and we train on the beach. So it was just me and him training in Honolulu. And it was so funny because, like, people would see us like tourists and stuff, and they'd take pictures of us, and we didn't care. And then uh, a lot of, like, a lot of local people thought it was interesting because a lot of times they thought that we were local. Both Okabayashi and I were from Hawaii because we both looked like local people. And especially since, you know, I, I had, you know, I was basically, when I lived out there, I basically dressed like a local guy and acted like a local guy. I mean, when I was in the university area, I acted like a guy from the mainland. But when I was anywhere else in Hawaii, I acted like a local guy. So uh, it was kind of fun being out there. And I basically had a personal coach for a year. Wow. Yeah. How much did you compete? Now, which year was this and how much did you compete at this time? 95 and 96. Essentially, I didn't. I didn't, well, I competed in Hawaii. In fact, <laughs> I ended up beating the state champion in a totally BS way in, 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 a, in a match that we had at the University of Hawaii. <coughs> Essentially, you know, Fitaisua was the, the reigning state champion at the time. He had been an amateur Yokozuna at, uh, what's it? I forget what university, Kinky University? I forget. But one of the universities in Hawaii, we had uh, several guys who were living in Honolulu, and there's a guy even, I think even now, who was a, a really good state uh, fighter, uh, Kimo um, James, I forget his last name, but he had actually fought in uh, the, the an earlier, earlier iteration of the world in Tokyo that wasn't really run by the... Um, what, what became the International Sumo Federation, but was basically a bunch of guys from Japan fighting with a couple of Hawaiians who were living in Japan, uh, a couple of uh, other foreigners who were living with Japan. But he was one of, James Iona, he was one of the first people who was uh, in international sumo, uh, amateur sumo for the United States. He ended up being a teacher in Tokyo and uh, had been coaching sumo in, in Japan for quite some time. Uh, he was one of the first American amateurs to fight, but Fitai Suo was also another guy, and I ended up basically uh, being in a, in a uh, match with him, and you know he was kind of taking it easy on me. You know He wasn't like trying to destroy me, but he had blown me out, and I grabbed his calf and pushed and moved his calf like two inches and got his foot out of the ring before I fell out. John Jacks was the ref said, Kevin's winner. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, it was so funny because that, it, this was at the University of Hawaii where I was a grad student. So like we were signing autographs after the, after the matches and Fitai signed the matches, signed all the autographs. I got beat by Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first part of our discussion with Kevin Carter, with the second and final part being posted shortly. No Holds Barred is brought to you by LennyHart.com, the home of Lenny Hart, 
the legendary MMA and sports announcer, voice actor, singer, actress, and comedian. Lenny is also known for her jazz vocals with her Lenny Hart Jazz Cabaret Band. For more information, to book her or to order a custom message from her, go to LennyHart.com. That's L-E-N-N-E-H-A-R-D-T dot com. And Skulls Fight Shop, home of the Skulls Double End Bag the perfect punching bag for your combat sports training. Skulls double-end bags provide a realistic striking target and help improve speed, distance, and timing skills. Hang it and hit it right out of the box. No pump required. Skulls Fight Shop. Advancing combat sports equipment for the next generation of fighters. For more information, go to Skulls that's S-K-U-L-L-Z, fightshop.com. And Adolfina Studios, original art prints and handcrafted fine jewelry. For more information, go to etsy.com, that's E-T-S-Y dot com, slash shop, slash Adolfina Studios, that's A-D-O-L-P-H-I-N-A Studios. Also, Please subscribe to the No Holds Barred page on Patreon for much more No Holds Barred content that's at patreon.com slash Eddie Goldman. Hello everyone around the world. Welcome back. This is Eddie Goldman, No Holds Barred. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the show. Thanks for listening. If you want to follow my site, my blog, the easiest way is go to eddiegoldman.com. For No Holds Barred, this has been Eddie Goldman.